Matthew 26. And then if you would, uh, most of your Bibles have a marker like this. This, uh, does your Bible have one of these? This is the, the technical term for this I learned in Bible college is a hangy thingy. Okay, so if your Bible has a hangy thingy, if you would put that thing in Mark 16, because that's going to really be our text here uh, after a few minutes and when we get a chance to go over to Mark 16. But if you'll put your, uh, we're going to start in Matthew 26, and then we're going to uh, go to the hangy thingy in Mark 16. When I was 20 years old, I got engaged, and uh, exciting time. Uh, it actually, it was to Katie, in case anybody's wondering. Uh, and we were looking forward to getting married in June of that year. And I had about two months, uh, about two months before the wedding, I was starting to get a little concerned because uh, I was not the physical specimen that you see before you today. I was skinny, uh, little, very little skinny, and uh, looked, looked 12 years old still. And so I thought I, I had just got a membership at the gym. And my wife, uh, well, fiance at that time, went back to Philadelphia to kind of get ready for the wedding. I was still in North Carolina. And so I decided I'm going to get uh, bulked up. Uh, right? Daryl's good, good to do, isn't it? Like Daryl. Get bulked up. And uh, so I got a membership to the gym, and I bought one of those things, those uh, containers of weight gain powder. You ever seen those? Big old muscle guy in the front. And all you have to do is drink this for 30 days, and you'll look just like that. And so, good deal. I got it. And I started to take, I, I started this regimen, and I weighed 125 pounds. I was, I tell you, I was a little, little guy. And uh, so, I thought, I'm not going to weigh myself till I'm done, because I want to pleasantly surprise myself. And uh, I started taking this powder. Uh, the working out part didn't happen so much, but I was drinking this powder, every day, and uh, after 30 days, just before the wedding, I weighed myself, and it was still 125 pounds. I hadn't changed one bit. Uh, I had not grown. A lot of times we want growth, and the way we want growth is to take it in a powder. You know what I'm saying? Just make it easy. That's the, w that's the easy way to do it, isn't it? Just take it, growth out of a can. But growth does not take place by just drinking powder. Growth takes place through work, through effort, through training, through difficulty is how growth goes. And so we've been talking about growth, the fruits of the Spirit. I wanted to make an observation. Uh, I was thinking about this this week. There's something different about fruit than many other things. Have you ever noticed there's no such thing as a fruit factory? You have automobile factories. You have uh, clothing factories, you have electronic factories, but you don't see a fruit factory, you see a fruit orchard, because for growth to happen, for fruit to grow, there has to be life, there has to be growth. You can't manufacture the kind of fruit we've been talking about here on Sunday mornings for the past few, actually a month and a half, you can't manufacture love, joy, peace, uh, long-suffering, meekness within your own heart yourself. You've got to have some supernatural help with that. And that's what, why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. You have to grow these things in your life. From God the Holy Spirit comes the life and the strength that we need to grow these fruits. 
Now, we've been looking at the life of Jesus, how he exhibited the fruit of the Spirit. We went through the fruits of the Spirit. If you haven't, uh, if you missed out on some of those, I encourage you to go. Uh, we have a YouTube channel where we play these messages, and if you want to catch some of those, it's been a help to me as I have studied for it, and I hope it has to you as well. Uh, but how Jesus exhibited the fruits of the Spirit. Because there was no greater perfect example for us than the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I want to look at the fourth fruit listed, long-suffering. As I was thinking along the lines of how do we show the long-suffering of Jesus, of course the cross came to mind. Jesus went to the cross for us. The pain and the torture that he endured while he was on that cross, and all the while he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels but he died alone for you and me. That's certainly an element of his long-suffering. But the word long-suffering, the original word for long-suffering, is makrothamia. It's a compound word in the Greek, and it uh, comes from the word makros, which is long, and thumos, which is temper. So really the literal translation of the original word could be something like long-tempered. Now, we all know what a short-tempered person is like, amen? A person will blow up at the slightest provocation, gets angry. Uh, and so, but the opposite is a long-tempered person. A short-tempered person will hold a grudge against people. And you know that the grudges seldom hurt anyone except the person carrying them. A long-tempered person has restraint and patience. He has the capacity of self-restraint in the face of frustration. The person who has developed the fruit of long-suffering does not rush to revenge. He actually rushes to forgive. And in forgiving, allows the object of his forgiveness to face new opportunities and have a new chance at life. The relationship can now heal and grow. But to do all this, you need long-suffering. And we need the kind of long-suffering that we really cannot produce in and of ourselves. A Sunday school teacher just finished giving her lesson, and she wanted to make sure she had made the point to the children. And so she asked the question, Can anyone tell me what you have to do before you can get forgiveness for sin? And they thought and squirmed for a little bit, and finally one of the little boys raised his hands and said, Sin? And yes, that's... That's technically true. You have to sin to be able to get forgiveness for sin. But here's the deal. We do all the time, don't we? We fail God over and over again, many times, even throughout our days. And we need long-suffering friends, yes. But we need a long-suffering Savior. And we have one. I want to show them to you today. Jesus demonstrated this in his life over and over. I want to look at a scene from his life today that showed this in the big way. Let's look first at the text here, Matthew chapter 26, verse number 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. 
Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I, not, will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Father, I pray today as we look at the long suffering of Jesus, that you would first of all remind us how blessed we are to have, have a Savior such as he. I pray that you'd help us also to be challenged to have a long-suffering spirit with one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what's going on in our text here is the Passover, uh, Passover was a time for singing the great halal, the hallelujah psalms. And Jesus here is in the upper room with his disciples. He's just had what we refer to as the Last Supper with them. And he has uh, told Judas to go and do what he's going to do quickly. So Judas has left. And now in the last moments he has with his dearest friends on earth in this quiet upper room, they sing a song. Soon all hell will be unleashed on him, but now it's still, and he raised his voice in singing, and so they did. We can almost hear the words uh, from their throats. Their hymn book actually was the book of Psalms, and they sang, as they sang the great halal, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord, Psalm 116, 13. I called on the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can be done unto me? That's, uh, those words are from Psalm 118, verses 5 through 6. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, 24. It's an amazing thing that Jesus was able to sing those words just before this horrible day which he was about to commence upon. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118.6 uh, This Less than a week ago, this song had been sung on the streets of Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. Psalm 118, verse 29. And then that led naturally into Psalm chapter 126, uh, 136, where uh, it says, For his mercy endureth forever. And that chorus is repeated 26 times throughout that psalm. Well, they finished singing, and Jesus took one last look around and went out into the night. Jesus and his eleven disciples now headed toward the Garden of Gethsemane. He again warned them what is coming, and that's what we read in this passage a minute ago. There, there's, this is a fact that Jesus knew with all of his heart. He could tell, and he knew, of course, what was coming. He knew they would all forsake him, and yet he said it, in a tender type of way here, without any real malice, it's almost as if he is forgiving them already. Jesus told the disciples that when all this was over, he would meet them in Galilee. Now, I want you to stop and think about that piece of instruction there. He essentially says, after I'm dead and gone, and after my funeral, I'll meet you in Galilee. You ever had a conversation like that before with someone? After I'm dead, when they bury me, I'll meet you in Brookings the week after that. That's what Jesus said. That's a pretty amazing plan, isn't it? And here's what's amazing even more than that. Uh, by the way, uh, Jesus knew death was just a small setback. It wasn't something that would keep him. It would not stop our Savior. Of course, they would forget this in the matter of days, but Jesus uh, would not forget. Now, what's more amazing to me, look at the layout of Scripture here. In verse 31... All you shall be offended because of me. And he continues there. Verse 32, But after I'm risen again, I will go 
before you into Galilee. Now, just look at that passage and think, which one is really the greater statement? After I'm dead, I'll meet you. That's a pretty big statement. I'm going to rise again, Peter. But Peter heard none of it. He didn't hear anything about that. Look at what Peter said immediately. Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet I will never be offended. Now, have you ever done this when somebody gets in conversation with you and they say something and that's all you think about? They say more, but you don't hear anything else. All you hear is what they first said. And that's what Peter did. He heard one thing Jesus said. What do you mean we're all going to be offended? What do you mean we're going to forsake you? He was stuck on that. The idea is that they will fall away. And this was too much for Peter. He did what he did so well. He made some big talk. He started to assure Jesus what, uh, that Jesus was mistaken. Always a mistake to try to tell God he's mistaken. Amen? He, and so he said, even if all the other men failed, I will not fail. He was a rock, or so he thought. He did not know his own heart. Jesus knew his heart better than he did. By the way, Jesus knows your heart better than you know it as well. So now Jesus goes into details. All right, Peter, you want to talk about it? Let's talk about it. Before the rooster crows tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. This was too much for Peter to take. And Peter insists, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. The other disciples followed Peter's lead. They all pledged their, uh, their loyalty to him. Jesus did not argue the point. Jesus knew the weakness of the flesh then, and he knows the weakness of our flesh now. They would find out in time what he already knew. And if I can just insert here, it is not a good idea for us to overvalue or have overconfidence in our own abilities. Overconfidence will drown you in a sea of reality. One reason for that is that overconfidence precedes carelessness. The best attitude we can have is for us to recognize our own weakness and realize that, yes, I am capable of ruining it. I am capable of failing my Savior. But we have overconfidence. March 1988, Rotarian Magazine told of an organization that was offering a bounty of $5,000 per wolf that was captured alive. And this turned two friends, Sam and Jed, into fortune hunters. They decided to go out and search and hunt for their valuable prey and turn it in and make a fortune. Well, they did this day after day with no luck. And finally, one night, they fell asleep, exhausted out in the wilderness, camping out there, dreaming of their fortune. Suddenly, Sam woke up. And he saw that they were surrounded by about 50 wolves all around them. The wolves' teeth were bared. Their eyes were gleaming. The saliva was dripping from their jaws. And they were slowly moving in on these two sleeping men. And he nudged his friend and said, Jed, wake up. We're rich. Overconfidence. Argent Kikaid said, overconfidence may work some days, but it definitely kills one day. This was Peter's problem, as well as the other disciples. Peter had a conceit problem. He was sure of himself. There was no allowance for doubt in his mind. He wasn't going to mess up. He thought higher of himself than he should have. 
Matthew 23, 12, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he, shall, he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Have you ever done that? Thought, hey, I've whipped that giant in my life. I'm never going to fail in that area again. I have made a decision. I'm not ever going to do X again. No worries. I got this. I will not fail. Remember that just before you fail. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When you and I uh, fail, which we all will do sooner or later, uh, it is usually done after we are pretty sure of ourselves. We're sure that we're okay and we set ourselves up for failure. Here was Peter. He says, I will never fail you. He even put the others down that were around him. Though I should die with thee, I will not deny thee. Peter had a conceit problem. Peter also had a comfort problem. After, as Jesus was getting into Gethsemane here, uh, and we didn't read on, but as, if you would read on, you'll see that he told eight of his disciples to stay at the gate, essentially, and then he took his three closest friends with him, uh, Peter, James, and John, into the garden with him to pray. The Bible says that he began to be sorrowful and very heavy, full of anguish and distress, according to verse number 37. With him were his three dearest human friends. And in the shadow of Calvary, as it began to fall on his soul, he charged his three disciples that were with him, Tarry ye here and watch with me. Verse 38. The humanity of Jesus longed for the comfort of knowing that these few here with him cared enough to watch with him. Understand something along with me, friends. When Jesus began his ministry, great crowds of people thronged him. He was followed around with, by thousands of people, but as time went on, they dwindled. After his sermon uh, about the bread of life in John chapter 6, many of his followers left him. But then he still had the twelve left. But now today, finding out one of them was a traitor. Now Jesus had eleven disciples, but... Eight were back at the gate, and so here he is reduced to three. By the way, the closer you get to the cross, the less friends will be hanging around you, the less popular sometimes we are. But here Jesus is, is uh, he has these three, and we think, well, hey, at least he has those three. Not really. They fell asleep. Look at verse number 40. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What could you not watch me with one hour? Now, this is interesting. Did you see what I, what I saw there? And it cometh unto the disciples. There's three of them. All three of them are what? They're sleeping. All three of them. Findeth them asleep. And he saith unto Peter. <laughs> Why are you picking on me? Why don't you tell John? It's, it's Peter that he kicked in the side. Hey, couldn't you stay up and pray with me? Why is he picking out on Peter? Well, I tell you why. Because Peter had just opened up his big mouth. He said, I'll never fail you. I'll be with you till the end, Jesus. You can always count on me. And he's sleeping. Jesus, of course, he called out on him. In the hour of Jesus' deepest need for companionship, it is here that he prayed with a heavy heart, such a broken heart, that he, the Bible says he sweat drops of blood. It was here that he prayed, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Here he is, and here he is in the anguish of his soul. And where is Peter? Peter's sleeping. May I say that that's the sad state 
of many Christians today. As the time draws near of Christ's return, it is ever more important to share the news of the gospel with those that so desperately need it. There is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. Uh, he says in Matthew 18, 11, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Yet when the world today is screaming for answers, Christians all over are asleep. When's the last time, friend, that you told a co-worker about Christ? When's the last time you handed out a gospel tract or witnessed to somebody? It may be true for many of us even here this morning, like Jesus told his disciples, Hey, wake up! He says in Ephesians 5.14, Awake thou that sleepest, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Hey, God's people need to stand up today and spread His gospel. Are you sleeping this morning spiritually? At the time that Jesus needed Peter the most, He's more concerned with comfort than He is commitment. Do those around you know that you're a Christian? Are you committed to the cause of Christ? Hey, you've got to be involved. Amen. To make a difference. Nobody is impressed with the one lost record of a referee. You got to get in the game to make a difference. Peter had a problem. He also had a pursuit problem. In verse 58, the Bible says, But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, the court of the high priest was entered by a porch which has a gate in it. Beyond that gate and the porch was a raised paved section that formed kind of an audience chamber for people to be able to stand there and watch. On both sides of this courtyard was the palaces of Annas and Caiaphas. They were the former and current high priests. Jesus would have been arraigned in this audience chamber. And not far away, Peter stood from a place where he could see Jesus and uh, I found it interesting here that he did follow him, but he followed him at a distance. He followed him from a long ways off. Have you ever watched something from afar off? There's a disconnect there. And, and listen, here he is. We, we can't be too hard on Peter because many of us in this room would do the same thing. In fact, not all of them were even doing what Peter was doing, following afar off. <coughs> all The soldiers had just taken Someone that he loved, he's in a panic, not knowing what to do, and may have been trying to formulate a plan. We see in John chapter 18, verse 18, that the night was cold, and some of the people in that courtyard decided to make a little fire of coals there. Uh, the, the Bible, uh, and Matthew's talking about Peter following afar off here. Really, it's a way of describing the, the gradual failure of Peter. He followed afar off. We see him in this failure, walking in the counsel of the ungodly. We see him standing in the way of sinners. And we see him sitting in the seat of the scornful, as it tells us not to do in Psalm chapter 1. We also find a parallel today, uh, into this day and age, that we have many people who are willing to follow God at a distance. Hey, I'll come to church, but don't ask me to get involved. Uh, years ago, I had a man tell me, I'll never volunteer for anything at church. Because after you do it once, they'll have you serving all the time. The, the horror of that, amen? I'll show up, but don't ask me to teach a Sunday school class. I'll go to church, but I'm not going to give. We've become a serve me generation. It's more about being a consumer than a contributor. 
Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 2, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. That's what we've become in this day and age. But we can be different. Amen. I will tell you what happens every time you follow at a distance. Every time you follow like Peter did afar off, it will not be long before you, friend, are walking in the counsel of the ungodly. It will not be long before you are standing in the way of sinners and then that will lead you to that progression of sitting in the seat of the scornful. Don't follow at a distance. Get involved, friend. Uh, plug in and let God use you. This church right here, we're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary. And I can promise you this church was not built and sustained by a bunch of people that followed at a distance. They got involved. They did something for God and I'm grateful for it. Make a difference. The truth of the matter is when you distance yourself from God and God's people by your very actions, you are drawing closer to the world. This is exactly what happened to Peter because next we see Peter had an association problem. Look at what it says. In, well, it's in John. John 18, 18. And his servants and officers stood there who made a fire of coals for it was cold and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them, standeth in the way of sinners, and warmed himself. We find Peter in the wrong crowd here. He shouldn't have been here in the first place, but here he is warming his hands. And after a while, somebody around the fire looks at Peter a little closer, and maybe as the fire builds, he can see the faces in the darkness clear. And he says to Peter, hey, hey, I know you. I know you. You're one of them. In fact, the exact thing he says, thou wast also with Jesus of Galilee. Before Peter, or as he's presented with this choice, one that we so often face, before we look at his response, let's go back to just hours before. Let me read you something he said. Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Here's his chance. Here's his chance. What's he going to do? What would you do? Uh, what do you do is a better question. Amen? We have that chance every day of our life. Well, then we see Peter had a denial problem. See how the problem's getting worse? He denied it and said, I am not, John 18, 25. What a step Peter took here, denying Christ openly. Peter had just said a while ago, I'll die with you. Now he says, nope, don't know the man. <laughs> don't know what you're talking about. Don't know who that is. I mean, I've heard of him, but I don't know him personally. It gets worse. Next we see Peter had a blasphemy problem. In Mark 14, 71, but he began to curse and swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. To prove he was not one of them, he started to do what they do, or not one of Jesus' disciples. He did what these sinners did. Isn't it sad how far sin will take us? He would have never dreamed this happened because just hours before he said, there's no way in the world that I'll ever leave you, Lord. I'll never deny you. Then he hears a sound. I've thought about this in detail. The feeling that would fill me and you, if I'd hear the sound, just after I say this, the words are just coming out of his mouth. Like arrows that cannot be retracted and brought back. And he hears a sound that no doubt shot through him like electricity. He hears the crowing of a rooster. And I wanted you to see something here. It's in Luke 22, but if you'll listen as I read verse 60. Because I want you to picture this in your mind. Put on your thinking cap and just picture this in your mind. And Peter said, Man, I know, not, I know not what thou sayest. Immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. Now that's bad enough. The realization of your own failure. 
But it gets worse. It says here, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Man, stop and think about that. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. What he had said to him before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. Wow! That means they're, they're within sight of each other. Peter's denying Jesus. He hears the rooster. Goes, oh, my soul, he thinks. And he looks over to Jesus and Jesus looks at him. They make eye contact. What are you feeling at that moment? Oh, my goodness, I can't imagine. Oh, how are you feeling now, Peter? All that big talk, and yet here you are, and Jesus made eye contact with him. Friend, have you ever been there? Regret? Failure? Disappointment? I can only imagine the pain and the guilt that descended on his soul as Jesus made eye contact with him. The Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. I imagine so. The disciples, Noah the disciple had risen as high as Peter or descended as low as he did. And I imagine that many of us here can identify with Peter. The bitterness of failing. The bitterness of letting God down. Especially after we've talked a good game in church. We've come and we've given testimony and and we've gotten in the baptismal tank. And we've talked about how God saved us. And, and we said we're going to do right. And we have uh, trying to be put on a good face. And now here we are and we failed God in a terrible way. And we've messed up more than we thought we ever would. What happens now? Do you throw in the towel? Do you quit? Most assuredly, Peter knew, Jesus wouldn't have any use for him now. I mean, he's done with him at this point, you don't fail someone at this level and expect to have them to have any use for you going forward. Peter knew he was finished. God wouldn't want him now. Brings us to our next text in Mark chapter 16. All that was introduction. Now we're getting into the message. Amen? Give you just an idea of how long this thing's going to be. I'm just kidding. Actually, the introduction is the, is the longer part, but this will be a blessing to you. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices, and they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man standing on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they have laid him. Jesus is risen. The angel is sharing the good news. You see, there's a group of disciples in this town that are discouraged. They have no idea what to do now. They gave up everything, their whole life, their business. They gave up everything to follow a Messiah that is now in the grave. And what are they supposed to do now? Above all, there's one disciple who always has something to say. He's always first with the jokes. He's always up front, always the loud mouth, but not so much now. He hasn't said much in the last three days. He has been filled with deep bitterness of soul. 
He has wept till he cannot weep anymore. He is so overcome with shame that he can't look others in the face. Because after all, you remember, he had put them all down to try to lift himself up. And then he, the one who made all those claims, when the rubber met the road, he fell flat on his face. Now Jesus is gone. And he's a failure. He failed in every way that he said he wouldn't. I wonder if it didn't go through his mind as he was thinking about that. And I know it's a terrible thought, but maybe it's better that he's gone. Because he certainly wouldn't want me now. Oh, but friends, look at, with me in the next verse. I want to show you what I think are the two sweetest words in the New, in the New Testament. Verse 7. But go your way, tell his disciples, disciples and Peter. They goeth before you to Galilee. There shall you see him, as he said unto you. Why didn't he say, and Thomas? Why didn't he say, and Nathaniel? Why didn't he say, and John? We know why. Because we have a man at the lowest point in his life. He can't get any lower. He's wept tears of bitterness. He's convinced that Jesus wants nothing more to do with him. And so doing, he has quit and gone fishing. And here's the angel's message. You tell the disciples. Tell the disciples, but when you do, tell Peter. I'm not done with him. And, and, and he knows, Peter knows that he's, he's, he's done, he thinks anyway he's done, that God has no use for him now, and it's all his fault. All his hopes and dreams have been dashed by his own weakness. And so here the angel says, tell the disciples that, hey, death has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. Sin has been paid for. Death has lost its sting. Tell the disciples, and hey, when you tell the disciples, make sure Peter's there. You make sure you tell Peter as well that this wonderful thing has transpired. He is convinced that I have more, no more use for him. He's quit and went fishing. But you tell the disciples. You tell the disciples, but when you do, Tell Peter. I'm convinced in this room this morning we have some Peters. There's a time in your life you're on fire for God. Maybe you've made some promises. Hey, I'll never leave you, Lord. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to go to church every week. I'm going to tell everyone about you. Then the trial hit. Some things came in your life that are difficult. And you started to follow at a distance. Stop going to church quite as faithfully. Not as involved in your Bible reading. And soon you're around the wrong people. Listening to the wrong things. Maybe even with your life and possibly with your words or your actions, you've even denied your Savior. Now the load is heavy on your shoulders with your own failure. Let me be the one to tell you this today, friend. You may have made a mess of things. Your load is heavy on your heart. You may have wept your tears of bitterness. But Jesus said, tell the disciples. Tell the disciples and Peter. Tell the one who has failed. John 10, 3, he calleth his sheep by a name. And you can insert your name here, friend. Jesus knows your name. He knows the load that you carry. Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Jesus knows you. He knows your weakness. He knows that the, the, the ways that you have failed. And friend, He's still willing to use you. He's still willing to pull you up out of your failure and put you on the path of serving Him. You know the one Jesus is the most interested in today, friend? The one who's the farthest away. That's why He said, You go tell Him this news. You tell Him that death has been defeated. You tell Him that I'm back out of the grave. And when you do, I want you to tell the disciples. But not just the disciples. You tell Peter specifically. Praise the Lord. Tell the one who's hurting. Tell the one who thinks that it's all over. Tell the one who has failed me the most. Tell my disciples and Peter. Tell Peter I still love him. I still have room for him in my service. Now, with that in mind, I ask you, aren't you glad we serve a long-suffering Savior? We serve a long-suffering Savior. One who does not hold our wickedness against us, but forgives and restores and uses us in despite of it. What a blessing that is. Isn't he wonderful that he forgave you? Isn't it wonderful that he forgave me? I am so glad that my Father in heaven tells of a love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see, but this is the greatest that Jesus loves me. We have a long-suffering Savior. He forgave Peter. You know what Peter did? He picked up the pieces. And he came back to Jesus. It's another whole message, but they stand on a seashore there, and, and Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? Peter's not bragging anymore. Yeah, I'm fond of you. I mean, he's not. He's being very careful now. Asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? And he put him to work. And tell you, he, our love for him is imperfect. We fail him. But his love for us is perfect. He's a long-suffering Savior. And he'll use you. He used Peter. Peter picked up those pieces of his failure. He allows God to put him back together. And he goes on to preach a message in Acts chapter 5 called Pentecost. And 3,000 people walk forward and get saved. Peter's used in a great and mighty way because he didn't let his failure stop him. He had a tremendous failure, but because of a long-suffering Savior who forgave him, he picked up the pieces and he forged on. And he did great things for God. I look around the room this morning and I see a good-looking group of people. In a crowd this size, we're going to have heartache, struggles, and sin burdens. I always try to remember this as a pastor as I look at the uh, crowds we have and <coughs> everybody's got our smiles on and carrying our Bible, but I think if our hearts were somehow opened on, on a typical Sunday morning, it would shock us how much pain is being borne right in this room here. How much trials are being dealt with. Uh, my, uh, the struggles re represented in this room are huge. Many carry the weight of failure in their hearts. And what do we do outside the walls of our own heart? We plaster on a smile and we shake hands with people and people ask, how you doing? And we say, fine. I tell you, one who knows is a long-suffering Savior. And He knows. And He cares. Enough so that when He's got forgiveness to give and he's got victory to declare and he wants to send the news he picked out specifically the one who had failed him worse than all the others tell my disciples but tell Peter too
I'm not done with that guy. And he's not done with you. I don't care if you failed him. Come back today. Tell my disciples and Peter, sweetest words in the New Testament. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. We have a long-suffering Savior. Here's the problem with many of us, though. We don't forgive ourselves, and we think Jesus can't either. Can I ask you today that if there's something in your life that's been holding you back, if there's something that has specifically crippled your service of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you let him have it today? Because he is saying this to you. Tell my disciples, death has been defeated. You don't have to be in bondage to your sin anymore. Tell my disciples and insert your name. He wants you. Would you stand along with me as she begins to play? And if you've got something.